I'm uh, speaking, uh, I know, to people who love the Lord, and that's really what matters. And whatever accent we have isn't the issue. I want to speak to you today on why creation is theologically important. Just remind you that out there is a book table if you want to find out more. My book, Genesis for Today, is there. That's the first book that I wrote. Then there's also another book, Genesis 1 to 11, a commentary. Uh, There's also the big book, Wonders of Creation, which you might consider getting for friends, for Christmas or for birthdays or whatever. It's a, a big book. It's a coffee table book with lots of pictures. And there's also these booklets, which is a a summary, really, of the big book, much cheaper, of course. And you might like to get a, quite a number of those to give out, really, as booklets to people who are not yet believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that one is a summary of the big book. Uh, is it true evidence for creation? Because people, of course, try and say that everything evolved. And then another booklet is called Are You Really an Atheist?, which I've written, which I give out as tracts to people Many people in my country, sadly, are saying that they believe that atheism uh, is the only answer. And of course, they don't realise that by saying that, even their own minds, they don't know where they've come from. Uh, They don't even know that the science that they supposedly believe in is true. You've got no platform at all for thinking, let alone platform for morals, platform for uh, those things which are really vital, that is, to do with knowing right and wrong. So atheism is dead in the water, frankly, but that's what that booklet answers. So you might like to get quite a number of copies of those and use them as tracks. Maybe the church would like to consider using it. Um, But I want to show to you just briefly in this talk this morning as to why we need to stand on this issue today. I know this church believes in it, and may I take the opportunity to to thank Pastor Jim in his absence, but also Pastor Mark here and others who are leading this church for your kindness in having me come, putting up with a Brit wandering around and uh, with his remarks about Boston Harbour and all the other things that I've been making. But, uh, you know, it's, but may I thank you seriously for your kind support of the creation ministry, not only to me, but I know you've had people like Andrew Snelling come through and uh, people like Danny Faulkner from Answers in Genesis. I know those two gentlemen very well. I know Ken Ham and many others in that ministry and the Creation Ministries International as well, Robert Carter and others. So, um, you know, I really appreciate your welcome to my colleagues who are standing for the truth. But what we really need to grasp is that this is a major issue. And things have changed. I remember when this took place. Let me just play this video clip. All the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8, has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. They were good. So just about a year before man landed on the moon, 
I remember when that was done as a young man, young boy, and frankly, uh, you know, it's astonishing. It would never happen today. Things have moved on hugely, and NASA, of course, is embraced massively into the evolutionary thinking. Uh, one of the other astronauts, James Irwin, once said this, God walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon, and how right he was. And what a, what full of hope those quotes are and that wonderful reading of scripture from a space. But compare that with the forlornness of this gentleman who's died now. But Stephen Hawkins said, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of a 100 billion galaxies. We are so insignificant that I can't believe the whole universe exists for our benefit. Sadly, he now will know how wrong he was. But this is a very important issue. Why is it so important theologically? Why must we keep firm to this position of creation. Psalm 11 verse 3 says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I don't know whether you've been to Pisa and seen the leaning tower, it really is leaning. And of course, those foundations are vital. They tried to shore them up, but basically they didn't get it right. Maybe eventually it'll fall. But frankly, foundations are vital. Why can't we just have the Bible and evolution? Why is this quite such an important issue? Let me just say that the Titanic collided with an iceberg and it was the bit underneath which did the damage. It's Yes, they saw it too late that they were going to hit this iceberg, but it was the bit underneath which brought a great big gash right down the hull of the Titanic such that it sank and we all know the story. But we might then say, why is creation so important? I do make it plain that it's not of itself a salvation issue. It's not of itself an issue of salvation. Romans 10 and 9 does not say that you must believe in creation. It does not say that, does it? Let me just turn you to it because it's an important verse. Romans 10 and 9 actually states very clearly what the gospel is. And it says, if, you shall, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. We are saved by grace. But having said that, we know that if you try to actually combine evolution with the Bible, it actually brings shipwreck to people. And many people have had that happen to them. They've been taught in very good, strong Bible-believing churches. They've grown up in the church. Then they go to university. They hear somebody like Lawrence Krauss from the University of Arizona saying that, you know, you're all stardust. Forget the... Jesus dying for you, the stars died that you might be here today. That's one of his quotes. And he's getting at Christianity. And they hear other people saying similar things. And soon or later, they begin to doubt that the Bible is true. 
and they begin to doubt creation and in the end they doubt even the resurrection of Christ, which of course is crucial to Romans 10 and 9 and salvation. So it causes many people to have shipwreck. So we do need to see that it is important. We're going to look at four things in the time I have available. We're going to look at the fact that there was no death before the fall. We're going to look at the fact that creation was by God's word. Thirdly, we're going to look at the fact that Adam was made from literally dust, that woman was made from man. She wasn't made from dust. Very important with the identity crisis that we have today, that we understand how man was made and how woman was made. And then lastly, very importantly, even though it's last, the flood was global. So let's look at these four issues. No death before the fall. Interestingly, you don't just go straight to creation and Genesis. You actually see that it's the New Testament that is at stake. Let me just remind you, though, in Genesis, it says that God created light on the first day, that he created the expanse, or translated in the King James, the firmament, the waters above and the waters beneath. In other words, he created an expanse and he clearly says on day two that there was waters above and that there was waters beneath. Interesting that because the expanse is where the stars are put because it clearly says the Rachir, called the Shemaim, a little bit later in Genesis 1, is where the stars were placed. And so it is evident that the waters above doesn't mean the waters above, just the sky here. It's talking about the waters above, way out in of a very large, finite universe, which is an interesting point that is picked up by Danny Faulkner and uh, Russ Humphrey's people who've studied these things and studied the scriptures. All the indications are that God is speaking here of waters on the edge of the universe and from the waters beneath, he makes everything else here. Land, flowers and trees, day three, the sun, moon and stars put into the Rachir, the Shemayim uh, on day four and then the fish and the flying creatures flying on the surface of the, uh, the, the, the heaven. So that then is really, you know, there's three heavens in the Bible. Paul refers to the third heaven where Christ is. So the first heaven is where the, st- where the sky is. We would say where the birds are flying. The second heaven is space where the stars are. And the third heaven is where Christ, where God dwells. The fish, the flying creatures, then day six, God makes man as well as the animals first and then man. And then he rests on the seventh day. That is the summary of Genesis 1. But now, theologically, why is it important? Well, as I said, no death before the fall. And as you come to the New Testament, Romans 5 says, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So death, according to Romans 5, comes from one man. Who is that one man? Well, it's Adam, isn't it? And... Christ is the new Adam, who second Adam, who actually now we are brought into his family when we believe in him as our saviour. The answer is that Jesus Christ brought life and Adam 
brought to death. So as in Adam, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The glorious truth of salvation is predicated, is built upon the foundation of Genesis, which has been quoted here both in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. So if in fact you were to start saying, well, I don't believe in Genesis, You're not just affecting Genesis if you start saying that you don't believe in creation. You're actually tearing apart the Bible in the New Testament. You find that whole tracts of the New Testament have doubt put upon them because Jesus referred, when he talked about marriage, as in the beginning, God made them male and female. Well, are you going to start doubting the words of Christ? Here, the Apostle Paul is building a whole theological argument on the fact that Adam brought death into the world, which means that death was not there in the beginning. In the beginning, Jesus, sorry, God had said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that you eat, thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He also says, after the fall, that unto dust you shall return, which clearly implies that, sorry, physical death is part of the the offence, bringing, sorry, part of the judgment of the offence that had been committed. So we must understand that physical death as well as spiritual separation from God is implied by the fall of man. The teaching of the Bible concerning death is very important in order to understand the magnitude of the gospel where Jesus Christ bled and died in our place that we might be forgiven. He was experiencing physical death, yes, but also on the cross, we'll see in a moment, he was experiencing separation from God, his Father, which will never happen again. And he was doing it, he was doing it because of these commands in Genesis. In the day that you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Adam both died spiritually, he immediately experienced separation from God, such that God says, Adam, where are you? And he says that, Actually, now to the whole of the human race, where are you, Adam? He speaks to us all even today saying, where are you? Ephesians says, you are born dead in trespasses and sins. You need to own up before God that you are born dead in sin. We're born separated from God. We're living in awful days, as you know, there's the terrible war in the East. And as if that wasn't enough, We now have a terrible war in the Middle East and we're being reminded of the awfulness of what's going on. Man's inhumanity to man. Terrible things are being done and we are living in the midst of death and suffering and we're being reminded of our own frailty. We do not know, as Pastor was saying earlier, we do not know what tomorrow may bring. We cannot live as though we're going to be here forever. In March, two years ago, 2021, I suddenly experienced a pain. I said, oh, it must be wind. And I knew, my wife was saying, 
need to get a doctor. I said, no, it's just wind. But it wasn't wind. She knew better. I was having a heart attack. And I was rushed, blue lighted, straight into the middle of Manchester. And she didn't know that she would ever see me again because we were still in the grips of COVID regulations. She couldn't go in with me. It took them six goes, having put stents in my, uh, uh, my arteries. took them six goes to get me going again, and they failed. And the seventh go, they got me going again. So friends, I've been reminded that I'm on borrowed time. I'm over 70, and I know that my days are in his hands. Psalm 31 states exactly those words. They become very precious to me. Psalm 31 verse 15, my times are in thy hand. Your times are not in your hand. Your times, each one of you, even if you're a child here, you think you've got 70 years ahead of you, you do not know. God tells us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Psalm 90 verse 12. And that psalm, by the way, was written by Moses. Teach us to number our days. So when man fell, the wages of sin, it says in Romans 6, is death. Then that same verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So do you see the juxtaposition? On the one hand, Adam brings death, Christ brings life. So we went through Genesis briefly earlier. I gave you a summary of Genesis 1. And if you actually read Genesis 1, I haven't time to read the whole passage in order to fit everything in, but you know Genesis 1 keeps on repeating, it was good, it was good. Day one, the light was made, it was good. Day two, the expanse, day three, you can't see the expanse, but day three, you could see the land and the sea, the plants and the trees. It was good, repeated twice. Day four, the light bearers, good. Fish and birds, good. Land animals, good. Six goods thus far. But now we come to the seventh appearance of the word good. God saw all that he had made after the end of the sixth day and behold, it was very good. Seven times good is repeated. That is perfection. But when Adam sinned, all was not good. Death was now in not only him, but all the animals as well, the land animals, the fish and the birds, death. Light bearers were shaken. Thorns and thistles would grow on the plants and the trees and whatever would those things would experience a sort of reminder anyway of death. Floods and storms would be known with the land and the sea and even the lights wouldn't always be there and the darkness and danger we would be aware of. Things had changed. The doctrine of death affects the preaching of the gospel. Let me now just bring you to the cross. Now, I won't be able to preach everything on this. It was impossible. In fact, really, this slide needs to be dealt with very, very slowly if you're going to understand it. Maybe Pastor Jim or Pastor Mark and others here have actually preached on the seven statements of Christ on the cross. It's a wonderful series when you hear such things because they really are amazing. The first three sayings are in the light. Jesus deals with 
uh, everybody by saying, apparently it's uh, in the Greek, it's repeated. That is, the words used, the phrases used are, Jesus is saying repeatedly, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then his dealings with his mother and John the Apostle to care for her when he has died. Then his dealings with the thief on the cross who says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom and he is the first brand plucked, as it were, from the very burning which he was going to experience in hell. He plucks him away and he says, this one's mine. What a treasure. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. What a statement that Christ makes on the cross. All that done in the light. But then you, when you put all the verses together, you find that there were six hours Jesus Christ went on the cross at about nine o'clock in the morning and he finally dies at about three o'clock in the afternoon. In between, as it says from the Old Testament, uh, you have to look up this in Exodus 12, but it's in between the two evenings. This precisely as when the Passover lamb was, uh, was dying, was being killed. So Jesus dies after six hours on the cross. But in the middle, at the sixth hour, it's it actually, sorry, I beg your pardon, I'm sorry, at the third hour, get it right, the third hour of the day, that is at 12 o'clock noon, it goes dark. Totally supernatural darkness for three hours. And hardly anything is said. And then right at the end of that three hours of darkness, These words are said one after the other. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me as Jesus Christ has been experiencing what I would have experienced in hell itself. He experiences separation from God the Father, which will never happen again on the cross. It will never, ever happen again. God the Father had turned his back on his own son, such Jesus says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he uses this distant word for God, Eli, Eli, rather than Abba, which he generally would use. Then he says, I thirst. He'd refused the vinegar before, but now having taken our sin upon himself, he says, I thirst. And then having taken that vinegar, he says, just one word, tetelesti, done, complete. The transaction is done. He's taken our sin He's wonderfully achieved what nobody else could ever do. No angel could do this, but Christ could. Amazing, he'd taken our sin. This is a cry of victory, not, you know, dismal failure. It's not, oh, I'm finished. No, it's, it is finished, done, complete. And then he cries out, Father, and he uses Abba again, Father into thy hands. I commit my spirit. And it says in John's gospel, he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost or the spirit. Amazing. He controlled his own death. He says, I lay down my life and I take it again. No man takes it from me. Jesus Christ took the double aspect of death which was there in the garden of Eden. He took both the spiritual aspect of death, separation from God, which we are in danger of experiencing ourselves. We have a Damocles sword hanging over us 
If we don't repent, don't turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who bled and died for us, that is the great danger for us all. But he also took the physical aspect of death. And this is an important point because those who believe that God used evolution, we call them theistic evolutionists. They believe that God somehow used evolution. They believe in the gospel, but they don't properly really believe in the foundations of the gospel because now they have a big problem. Why did Jesus Christ not just get off the cross when he cried, it is finished? Because there was a further aspect to the penalty of death, which was the physical death which is what he had to go through, that you might have a changed body. Believe it or not, you're going to see a new version of Andy McIntosh when you go to heaven. You'll say, I don't recognise him. Yeah, might be true. Because I'll be, you know, in a changed body. And we'll all be speaking the same English if we speak English by then. No more mutations. (laughs) We might even drink tea. There we go. Anyway, joking aside, do you see the importance that the gospel is fully, only fully understood when you have death understood? And the biblical teaching on death is there in the book of Romans, 1 Corinthians, all the way through the New Testament. Briefly, these last points, because the first point is really the major point. Creation was by God's spoken word. God spoke everything into existence and it was so. All the way through Genesis 1, God speaks, God speaks everything into existence. So much so that you see the Lord Jesus with the same creative power speaking to a dead body and saying, Lazarus, come forth. Speaking to the inanimate Lake of Galilee, which was in a storm, peace, be still. He showed his creative power of deity. Creation was not done by a process. It was done by God's voice. And John 5 refers to God's voice from heaven. If you read John 5 carefully, it says that all in the graves will hear his voice. God is going to show the same amazing creative power by pulling down the whole of the the stars of the universe in one sweep. In Matthew 24, it talks about the stars falling from heaven. Boy, we just do not see millions of years in the end, neither was there millions of years in the beginning. It was God's spoken voice that brought everything into existence. And Colossians 1 is very powerful. I love Colossians 1, and we haven't put it up on the screen there, but Colossians 1.18 goes on to say that in all things he might have the preeminence, um, as it says there in verse 17. But friends, you see that he is the image of the invisible God. He is, by him were all things created that are in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or principalities all powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. That is an incredible statement. If ever there was a statement of physics in the Bible, this is one of them. 
By him, everything, the literal word is, everything hangs together. People still don't understand what matter is. They're looking for muons and gluons and lots of muons. And they go further and further down into molecular space and they've, they just do not understand. And nobody, none of us fully understands how everything hangs together. But the Bible tells us, by him, all things consist. And then it goes on to say in verse 18 that in all things he might have the preeminence. And it's by the word of God that everything is made. And it tells us that in Hebrews 11 verse 3. And as I indicated earlier, it was just God saying a word that brought these amazing healings in the Gospels, including the raising of Lazarus. Can I emphasise to you then that the theology of creation is important because it affects our Christology, our understanding of Christ, both in the theology of what he did on the cross when he bled and died to save us, which was my first main point, right? It undermines our understanding of death and it undermines the greatness of what Jesus Christ achieved at the cross. But secondly, it undermines our understanding of the amazing power of the voice of Christ. In the talks that I'm doing with MCF, Midwest Creation Fellowship, that kindly Ken is leading and taking me to each night, um, I'm actually speaking on the wonder of the human voice. And when I come to the end of the talk, I speak of the wonder of the voice of Christ. And if you believe in evolution, you've got no sense of wonder as to the majesty of Christ. Creation was by God's spoken word. But let me bring you now to another point, and that's this. Creation involved Adam being made literally from dust. He was not made from ape-like creatures, creatures coming down from the trees. You know, and that God eventually takes one of these homo this and that and the other and says, oh, well, I'll pick that one, you know, and I'll make that one into a, a, a human being. Is that what happened? And would you believe it? Even the, the godly John Stott, towards the end of his days, began to speak like that in one of his books on commenting on Genesis. He saw no problem in God taking one of those homo pre-existing ape-like creatures and making them into what he called homo divinus. That's so wrong. So wrong to say that, friends. Remember I had Genesis 3.19, dust you are and unto dust you shall return. That verse clearly shows us that in the same Breath, God is saying, dust you are and unto dust you shall return. You can't have the word dust changing its meaning in the same breath. Adam, because you were made from dust, you're going to dust. That doesn't mean because you were made from ape-like creatures, you're going back to becoming apes. Can't mean that. It's literally saying, Adam, you were made from this dust. You are now going back to dust. In other words, physical death came as a result as we said earlier, 
of man's sin. But it's also emphasising that Adam was made from dust and Eve was not made from dust. Eve was made from Adam. Now that's an important point because we have big issues today to do with transgenderism. And people, of course, will try and deny what it says in Genesis. But Genesis is very clear. Genesis 1 verse 26, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and so on. So then it says, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Him. Male and female created he them. And it's very evident that God is saying that he would make man and woman in the image of God. But when you come to Genesis 2, it says, verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living soul. Man is different to the animals. But then we read on in Genesis 2, God says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And the Lord God brings various creatures to Adam to see what he would name them. But none of them was found that would be a help meet for him. Genesis 2 verse 20. Then it says, verse 21, the Lord caused a great, sorry, a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made, and the word here is barna or built. He built a woman. He made a woman and brought her unto the man. Now this is so important. I mean, it must have been magnificent, the creation of woman. Adam must have been completely bowled over. But frankly, frankly, so should we with our wives because they are constructed differently to men. A man, even in fallen, in his fallen estate, is built for work and he was built basically for work even before the fall. You shovel the food in him, you tell him to go off and do some business, get the work done, come back to his home and go to sleep, you know, and get all the food in, got the strength, go back and do the same. But a woman's not built the same. She's not built with that same sense. She's built with relationship in mind. Obviously, there's range of differences, don't get me wrong. You cannot stereotype everything as being exactly the same. But essentially, woman is different to man. She's not to be looked down upon. The woman was raised in the public perception as Jesus taught on the nature of woman. Had the way the first person to actually see Jesus risen from the dead was Mary Magdalene. So God raises the position of woman in that sense, not to be over the man, but not to be looked down upon and trodden upon which sadly Islam does rather teach, as we know. They're not, they're not the primary people in the mosque, are they? In fact, they barely can get into the mosque. It's men. 
Whereas, of course, God clearly says, male and female created he them in the image of God. And this, of course, affects transgender nonsense today. We are born either XX or XY. Genetically, the science is totally against any idea that you could actually change your birth sex. You can't do it. God has made you in his image and you are to accept the image that he has put upon you of himself. He either makes you man, XY, and he takes the X twice from man and he makes a woman. Marvellous genetics, right? Fundamentally, and of course, the rest is obvious from the bodily form. So it's hugely relevant to the issue of identity today, which has been fought over rightly, and Christians should be in the vanguard of standing firm on these issues. Pray for those who are seeking to stand for truth in your society. Pray for us. We have terrible things going on where we are damaging and uh, we, we, are, we are operating on children and they'll never be the same again because of what's happened. It's a terrible thing to harm children. And Jesus had very harsh words for anybody who harmed a child. Better that they put with a weight upon them in the depths of the sea. The last point I want to bring to your attention briefly is this, that the flood was global. Why do I say this? Because once you've got this framework in your mind, it means you can go out and look at the science of geology. You can look at the Grand Canyon and begin to understand that everything is showing massive catastrophe, followed by probably a massive outflow of water after the water had covered the whole world. And it wasn't like that. It couldn't have been. It couldn't have been, you know, with a great big, <laughs> you know, straight down of water at the edge. It wasn't a local flood. It must have been a global flood. You can't have it making sense as being a local flood because if it was a local flood, God would have just simply said to, to Noah, just move. Move out of the way. But he didn't. God said, I'd build an ark. And that was the whole point. And it's very clearly referred to as a flood in 2 Peter 3, as well as the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. And in Genesis 9, God says, I do set my bow, the rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there'll never be a local flood again? That can't be the case because there have been plenty of local floods. Some of the most notable, and I remember it well, was December Boxing Day 2004, when a massive tsunami took place under the Indian Ocean and it caused even somebody from the University of Leeds, fairly high up in our university, to die on holiday from that tsunami. A bit later on, there was a terrible one in Sendai in, in Japan, and all these places and many floods since would show that God had broken his word because he said he would never do it again. It must be a global flood. Then it makes sense. God is saying, I'll never flood the whole world again. And of course, when you come to 2 Peter 3, as I mentioned, it clearly says, 
Where is the promise of his coming? For this they willingly are ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And it goes on to say, the heavens and the earth are now by the same word, the word that brought the flood, kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment. In other words, Jesus Christ himself says in Luke chapter 16, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And he also says in Luke 17 concerning the flood, let me just read it to you, because he says, as, let me just read it to you, in Luke 17, the Lord Jesus is warning and he refers to the flood again, because he says, as Noah brought the, uh, as God brought the flood, so it will be at the end. And it says they ate, they drank, verse 27. They married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. And he's saying, even so shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's in Luke 17. So friends, we need to see that Jesus Christ means what he says. 2 Peter 3 is written by the Apostle Peter and it means what it says. So why is creation so important? For those four reasons. Now I know I haven't dealt with one of the major issues that people have, which is the days of creation. But let me say this, that the days of creation are true ordinary 24-hour days. Because it says in Exodus 20, verse 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. So even though I've not made that one of the major four cardinal truths, once you've got those four cardinal truths in place, then you begin to approach the days of creation and you see that the obvious implication is that God is for you to, it is for you to take God at his word, that he means exactly what he says, that it's a creation week. Hence in Exodus 20, he says clearly that he made the world in six days and rested the seventh day. Everywhere that you get the word yom, which is the word used for creation in Genesis 1, with a number, everywhere you see it in the Old Testament, it always means a 24-hour day. And everywhere where you get evening and morning with a day, yom, it always means a 24-hour day. So friends, there is no excuse for not believing exactly what Jesus has said what God has said and which Jesus has confirmed. Let me end on this. I mentioned 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3 is saying, just as the flood came and destroyed everybody in those days, there is a fire coming, which is going to destroy this present evil world. Let me ask you, are you ready for that judgment to come? Where was the place of safety at the flood? It was in the ark. If you were outside, you were lost. If you were inside, you were saved. Very similar, isn't it, to what happened at the cross. There was a thief who was lost on one side. 
and that there was a thief who was saved on the other side. Everything is concentrated in the Bible on your understanding of the way of salvation through Christ alone. Are you saved? Have you personally trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself? That is the most important truth of all. He bled and died, as we were saying in the first point that I made, that we might be forgiven. He bled and died, taking what would have taken me in hell forever. He took it in those three hours on the cross. May God bless you all. Thank you for listening.